are listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast. Today's message is brought to you by our pastor and teaching elder, Adam Vincent. Father, we praise you and thank you so much for the opportunity that we have once again to gather together as your people to uh, worship you through song as a means of encouraging our hearts. God, that we can reflect back to you what you are teaching us and encouraging us about. God, I thank you for our time together already this morning as we've been able to reflect on truths through song that we are going to look at in your word this morning together. I thank you that you are in control of everything, that even in the midst of suffering and difficulty and trials in our life, we can trust that you are at work, that you are in control, that you have a purpose and a plan behind everything that you bring into our life. God, we thank you for your goodness this morning, that as your children, we can trust that you are working good in our life. And God, I do pray for our time together in the word today that you would teach us more about you, that you would challenge our thinking, God, that you would use the Holy Spirit to uh, open our minds and enlighten our, our thoughts and our hearts about what you want us to know today about you and your plans for us now and your plans for us in the future. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you want to open your Bibles up to 1 Thessalonians, kids in our kids' class can be dismissed. Um, Melissa will be in the back to take them. I think I said 1 Thessalonians. I mean 2 Thessalonians. When I go to study, I keep turning to 1 Thessalonians. and We're, we're not in 1 Thessalonians anymore. If you do not receive sermon notes this morning, it's because we don't have sermon notes today because things are going to go a little bit different. If you do not receive one of these sheets of paper, though, um, it's the exact same size, hole punch, just like normal. So if you've got one of those notebooks... Um, and you'd like one of these, raise your hand and I'll get one to you. Or actually, Jesse will get one to you. I was in our school staff meeting this week. We were um, challenged in the way that we teach and present truth in our classes. And one of the challenges that was given to us is that sometimes we might get into a rut of teaching the same way every time and we were challenged to think differently about how we're communicating information and switch it up from time to time and so that's what I wanted to do this morning um, as we look into our passage together is approach it from a different perspective allow you guys to hopefully uh, learn a little bit on your own this morning without me having to simply dump upon you what I learned this week and you just soak it all in and then leave and say, okay, that's what the passage means. I was also challenged because uh, Jason Evans this week um, had texted me and wanted to know more about or wanted some, some advice and guidance about how he could continue to study Second Thessalonians now that they've moved to Savannah. If I could send him notes and, and, and whatnot. And, and it challenged me that I want... You guys, if, if God ever does lead you away from here, to be able to study Scripture on your own, and if you're in the middle of a study with us, to be able to continue that study and kind of understand maybe how I study it, how I reach the conclusions that I do about the passage, and maybe you can glean some from that. So we're going to approach it like that this morning. So it's going to be a little bit more, and I posted on the, the city yesterday, it's going to be a little bit more uh, discussion-oriented maybe this morning. I want some feedback from you guys. Um, it's going to be a little bit more... Uh, Q&A time as well, so if you've got questions as we're going through this, feel free to raise your hand and ask, um, and we'll try to learn this together, and basically I'm going to take you through 
some of the initial steps that I go through when I'm studying a passage that I'm going to teach you. So we'll go through those initial steps together today, and then next week I'll actually get us into this passage together more in depth like we would normally do. All right? Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we looked at verses 1 through 4 uh, last week. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are doing. We talked about this being a follow-up letter to the Thessalonian church. It takes place not too long after 1 Thessalonians that more than likely whoever delivered 1 Thessalonians came back and brought word and update to Paul about how things were going in Thessalonica. And whatever report he brought back, Paul felt the need to immediately write another letter back to them. Now, obviously, it takes time for letters to travel. So, you know, it could have been a significant amount of time, a few weeks, maybe a month or two, before the letter was delivered, processed, and then the person returned to Paul. So, um, obviously, things have changed. And, and Paul felt the need to write once again instruction to this new church that he had not been able to spend as much time with as he wanted due to persecution to himself that ran him out of town. We talked last week about growing until Jesus returns. The second Thessalonians is heavy on eschatology. It's heavy on the return of Jesus once again. But there's also that, that dual aspect to it where we have a responsibility to be faithful now, to do what we should do now. And so we get both aspects, a view to the future and a view to the here and now about how we should be responsible today in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back. So we talked about spiritual growth being rooted in the work of God. Um, we talked about how Paul praises and thanks God for the work that has happened in this church. He says in uh, verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. We said that he's, he's saying, I ought to do this. It's right for me to praise God and thank God for this, because it's exactly what he prayed for in First Thessalonians. And we looked at some passages last week in First Thessalonians where he tells the church, I'm praying for your faith to increase. I'm praying for your love to increase. Now he gets this report back, and that's happened. And so Paul says, it's right for me. I ought to do this. I ought to be praising God because he's answered my prayers for you. He's answered my prayers. So we see that spiritual growth is rooted in the work of God, and it's also a response to our prayers that we can pray for our own spiritual growth, and we ought definitely to be praying for the spiritual growth of others here in our church, just as Paul prayed for this church. There was also spiritual growth. Uh, we talked about spiritual growth being the fruit of difficult times. He says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are doing, that you are enduring. We said that spiritual growth is the fruit of difficult times, that God brings us through difficult times so that we will increase in our faith, so that we will learn to trust him more. And we looked at lengthy passages last week, and I had you guys read out loud so that everybody could kind of learn and grow together. We looked at passage after passage in the Bible that talks about trials and temptations and difficulties being used for the good of the believer. 
And then we transitioned into kind of closing things out last week, talking about the spiritual battle that rages when we go through tribulation. That there's a spiritual battle that takes place when a believer goes through tribulation and temptation and trials. Ultimately, that battle rages between Satan and God. Now, obviously, God's in control. He's, he's um, over Satan. He has authority over Satan. Satan has to submit to God. There's a, there's a spiritual battle that rages. And we looked at examples, uh, including Job, where Satan comes to Job and God says, If you considered my servant Job, uh, he loves me, he worships me, he fears me, he obeys me. And Satan says, Well, of course he does because everything's going, everything's going his way. Everything's going his way. He says, if you challenge him, if you take things away from him, he'll curse you. And God accepts that challenge. And God accepts that challenge and allows Satan to do uh, pretty much whatever he wants to to Job in his life. And on the end of it, coming out of it, Job is still worshiping God. He's still submitted to God. And if you read the last couple of chapters of Job, we can even see Job testify to the fact that his faith has grown. His knowledge about God has grown. So there's a battle that rages for us in the midst of our tribulation. And we said last week that Satan's goal is to weaken our faith in difficult times. He wants our faith to be weakened. He wants our faith and appreciation and love for God to be grounded on us going through good times. That basically if God's blessing us, we're following him. But if blessing goes away, then we stop following him. That's Satan's hope. That's Satan's goal. We looked at the parable of the sower to see that. That there's some uh, seed that falls on the rocky ground, that when it springs up, but then difficulty comes and trials come, it withers away and it shows itself to not be uh, truly taking root. So we talked about the fact that as a Christian, um, if we're truly saved, we make it through difficult times. But there's a lot of people who will initially respond to the faith. They will come down front at a church service or have a camp experience Well, they will... They will come forward and say, I want to follow Jesus. But then as soon as difficult times come in their life, they they walk away from the faith. Or the sower in the seed parable goes on to say, sometimes it's the things of the world that choke it out. But it's not necessarily difficult times. It's it's sin. It's sin that, that comes in back into their life, creeps back into their life. And they decide, you know what? I like doing this better than following Jesus. So Satan's goal is for our faith to be strictly grounded on God's blessing. If he's blessing us, then we'll trust him. God's goal is to strengthen our faith in difficult times. He wants us to rejoice always, trusting in his goodness. And we talked about what God's goodness meant last week. We looked at Romans 8, 28. For God to be good towards his children, it means that he has favorable intent. And his favorable intent towards us is consistent across the board. So we use the analogy... How can God be good and give Sovereign Hope a new church, a new building to meet in, and then a pastor in Griffin watches his church burn to the ground and they don't have a good place to meet right now? How does how's God good in both situations? And we said that we have to look further down the road to see how God is good, that he has favorable intent. And his intent is to make us conform to the image of Jesus, is what Romans 8.28 says. That he works good for us so that we're conformed to the image of Christ. So the favorable intent is the same for me as the pastor in Griffin. Sometimes God uses good times in our life to make us like Jesus. Sometimes he uses bad times in our life to make us like Jesus. Right now he's using good times in my life to make me like Jesus. And he's using difficult times for the pastor in Griffin to make him like Jesus. But we can both be encouraged. We can both say God is good because he has good, favorable intent for us 
down the road in the future that is assured to us that we will be made like Jesus one day fully. Okay, so we talked about that last week. That's God's goal for us. So why does a good God let us suffer? So that our faith can be revealed to others. So that our faith will be revealed to others. It's so that others can see that we trust God no matter what, whether it's Satan and his forces or whether it's unbelievers around us. It allows our faith to be shown. It allows our faith to be proved. It shows other people that we really do have faith and trust in God, not just because he blesses us, but because we trust him with everything. We trust him with everything. We talked about um, the analogy, looking at the fact that God would have been right. He would have been very right to kill Adam and Eve in the garden once they sinned. He would have been just to do that. He said, if you eat, you'll die. So as they eat, he would have been very right. It would have been very appropriate for him to kill Adam and Eve. He would not have been unloving to do that. He would have not have been unmerciful or ungracious to do that. But what we said last week is the reason he chooses not to, the reason he chooses to show love and grace and mercy is so that we know that he is all those things. When he chooses to show love, when he chooses to be merciful, he's revealing to us what he already is. So he doesn't become loving. He doesn't become gracious because he spares Adam and Eve. And he would not have not been those things had he killed Adam and Eve. We just wouldn't have known it. We wouldn't know things about God unless he chose to do things. So for us, we can have faith in God, be truly Christians, and have everything go our way. But it would be hard for other people to see that we really have faith. So God allows us to go through difficult times to reveal our faith to others. So that others can look and say, they really do trust God. So Satan can look and say, they really do trust God Almighty. Because when I take everything away from them, when God allows me, like Job, the situation with Job, when God allows me to take everything away from them, they still praise God. And so our faith is revealed to Satan, to his demons, and to others all around the world as we go through difficult times and endure it. So then we left off last week. How do we allow God's goal to be accomplished in us? Number one, trust in his goodness is what we pretty much talked about all last week. But the way we allow God to do what he wants to in us is we trust in his goodness. No matter what we're going through, we believe that he has favorable intent for us. That he is pushing us in a direction of making us like Jesus. And he'll do whatever it takes, good times and bad, to make us like Jesus. And then I told you last week, the second aspect for how we allow God's goal to be accomplished in us is to trust in his justice. We trust in his goodness We trust in his justice, knowing that God will make things right in the end. Even when we look around and say, it's not right for the wicked to prosper. It's not right for the righteous to suffer. That in the end, all things will be made right. And you can read through some of the Psalms. They're called imprecatory Psalms where you've got righteous people crying out to God saying, why do you allow the the unrighteous to prosper? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense, and they cry out for God's justice. And we get assurance over and over in Scripture that God is just, and he will exercise his justice when Jesus returns. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 5 now. So last week, God's goodness. This week, we begin to see God's justice. Verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just 
to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. As well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now, just to give you an idea of what I do. When I sit down to begin to study the passage that I'm going to teach you guys, I always start with um, writing down what I identify as initial application or timeless truths. I'm going to give you a couple of examples, and then I'm going to have you guys look at the passage and see how many you can write down that you see here in this passage. Okay? Initial application. Um, One thing that I wrote down in my notes. How God judges in the end. Will be right. That's something that we can see in this passage. How God chooses to judge in the end, it'll be right. We see God's justice running through this whole passage. Okay, so that's one example. That's something that I wrote down as I initially read this. Okay, this is one thing that I can see here that God, when He judges in the end, it'll be right. How He chooses to judge, the verdicts that He reaches, they will be right. Another thing I wrote down God doesn't. Miss injustice. He takes note of it. And will repay it. We're told here that that God doesn't, doesn't miss it. It's not that anything gets past him. It's not that anything escapes him. He sees injustice. He sees how his people are treated. And he has every intention to repay it, to repay it properly. And we're told here that in the end, he will do so. Another thing that I wrote down that I'm going to give you some time to write. Endurance. Serves as evidence of salvation. Endurance serves as evidence for salvation. Look in uh, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now that verse connects back to verse 4. So if we look at verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. What Paul's saying there is the fact that you have been granted the grace to endure. 
The fact that you're not the guy on the rocky ground that falls away when things get tough. The fact that I can look at your endurance, see that you are remaining faithful and joyful and trusting in God's goodness, despite the fact that everything's crumbling around you. He says that to me serves as evidence that you are truly saved. He says this serves as evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Righteous judgment meaning that God has judged you as now righteous. That's part of salvation, right? That, that we are justified, that we are declared righteous. The Bible talks about that. When we get saved, we are now treated as though we're perfect. We're not treated as though we're perfect. It's imputation. It's Jesus gets our sin. We get his perfection. So Paul's saying this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you endure, you endure the suffering. It shows to me that you're a Christian. This is evidence of your salvation. It's evidence that you are worthy of the kingdom of God, that God has declared you righteous. It's not that they've earned it. It's not that they've done anything to deserve it. It's the fact that God is clearly at work in them because it's the only thing that makes sense. Anybody that's not a Christian would not continue to follow Jesus when they went through the things that Thessalonians were going through. Does that make sense? So it's evidence of their salvation, the fact that God is clearly at work in them because they would have fallen away a long time ago. The fact that they're still following Jesus, it's evidence that they're truly Christians. And that's what he says. It's evidence of the righteous judgment of God. All right. I want you to look at the rest of the passage now. And I want you to write down as much initial application that you can see. And they should just be like one sentences. Like not paragraphs. Just write down clear truths that you can identify in this passage similar to what we've already done here. Then I'm going to get you guys to share with me what you see in the passage. And then I'll share with you the other things that I wrote down. Initial truth, and we're not talking about truth that you see in other passages of Scripture that you're reading into this. See what Paul says in this passage that's true here. It may be true in other parts of the Scriptures as well. But what do we see right here in this passage that's true that we can take away from it? And this doesn't have to be like earth-shattering deep stuff. Like my stuff is obvious. Like this is what this verse is saying. So don't. Don't feel like you're supposed to be like seeing stuff that's like you need special glasses for or something. I mean, like for me, it helps to take a paragraph like this and split it up into bullet point sentences. This is what it's saying. And I always start this way so that as I begin to teach, develop an outline for how to teach this passage, I can clearly identify what's this passage saying? Like, what is Paul trying to communicate? Let's hear back from you. What are some things that, that clearly stand out to you that Paul's trying to communicate in this passage? Timeless truths, initial application. Okay, there's future relief coming for afflicted saints. Great. Okay, the afflictors, those that are afflicting on people, they become the afflicted when God, when Jesus returns. What else is there? Okay, Jesus is the one that's coming back. Um, and we're going to see why that's so important that Paul identifies Jesus as the one who returns. Jesus is the one who brings the judgment. What else is there? Okay, punishment is eternal. Good. Okay. We suffer now for the kingdom of God. Anything else that just jumps off the page? Today? This is what Paul's saying here. Okay. Um, this is what I had written down in my notes. Some of them you said. When Jesus returns, relief comes to the saints. That's, that's, clear, that's a clear point of Paul here in this passage, that when Jesus returns, as Christians, we can trust that relief comes. When Jesus returns, vengeance will come to the disobedient. That's the flip side to his judgment. 
For some, the return of Jesus is good. For others, the return of Jesus is not so good. Okay, He brings vengeance to the disobedient. The punishment for unbelief is eternal. And I added to it, it's tragic. Because what specifically are we told here is the punishment? We don't have any mention of hell here. We can read that into it and say, okay, when Jesus returns, the afflictors go to hell. But what's the, what's the key point that Paul makes here that is the punishment? They're separated from... They're separated from God's presence, okay? And to me, that's tragic. He doesn't have to go into full detail about what the punishment actually is. He doesn't give us a a discourse on hell and where hell is and, and whether hell's got real fire in it or if it's figurative. He just tells us when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, whatever punishment they get is eternal and it's tragic because they will be away from the presence of God. Okay? They've tried to get away from God their entire life. God will now give them that. He will remove them from his presence for eternity. The reward for belief is glory because it talks about him coming to be glorified in his saints. And it's obviously joy because we get counted worthy to be a part of his kingdom. So eternal joy for those that are saints. I wrote down that it seems that he comes on a day when all this happens. When all this happens. And we'll talk either next week or the week after uh, kind of the timing of when this happens. And I'll give you again my perspective on why I think this all happens at the same time that Jesus comes for his church and comes to bring punishment on the disobedient all at the same time, that the church is not removed and then a separate coming happens. And I'll show that to you later. But he, in my, in my opinion, looking at this passage, just reading it for what it is, he seems to communicate this happening all at the same time, that it happens on the day when he returns Jesus is coming to judge, and then there's two groups of people here. Which one am I in? Because Paul draws a pretty hard line here. It's not, ah, there's some people that fit into the middle here, and God will have to figure out what to do with them. No, he seems to draw a pretty strict line. we got these people and these people, and this happens to this group, and this happens to this group. Now, before we move on from that, um, why I think it's important... And you'll miss this if you're not, if you don't really look at it. It's important that Jesus is the one listed here as the one who brings vengeance. Revelation 22:12. Behold, I'm coming soon, Jesus says, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus declares that not just Paul thinks this, that Jesus thinks this. I'm the one coming to bring judgment. Okay? Romans 12:19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So vengeance and repayment is attributed to Yahweh. It's attributed to God the Father. Um, or just God in, in general. Talking about the Trinity, it's, it's attributed to God. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. This is Yahweh talking. This is the God of the Old Testament talking. Okay, so we see Romans and Old Testament Deuteronomy attribute vengeance and recompense and repayment to God. So then we come back to 2 Thessalonians. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Romans says it's the Lord that brings judgment. It's the Lord that brings recompense. Jesus says in Revelation, I bring it. Deuteronomy says, Yahweh says, I bring it. 
What we're seeing here is Paul affirming the deity of Jesus. Only God can do this. Only God can do this. Now, why is that important? It's important because when Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons show up at your door and try to tell you that Jesus is not God, it's inconsistent with Scripture. He can't be anything but God. He cannot come back and judge in the way that he's talking about unless he is Yahweh and yet unless he is God. Paul is affirming something that was believed very early by the church from the very beginning because people would like to convince you that that it wasn't until later that people got together and decided we think Jesus is God. No, it was believed by the early church from the very beginning. And we see the type of language in the Old Testament attributed to the New Testament. That it's Jesus who comes back and judges. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. He's the one that brings recompense and vengeance. Okay, so that's important to me. Now, a question that that I'm left with after just some initial application, and we'll talk more in depth about these points next week, is when I got to this point about the two groups, it left me with the question of, well, which, how, how, do, how do we know who falls into which group? How do we know who falls into which group? So the question I asked is, what defines these groups? Now, I'm going to give you a first description, and then I want you to give me some of the other ones. I see here two different types of people. We've got afflictors, if that's a word, versus the afflicted. Okay, so Paul's talking about two people, afflictors and afflicted. Give me some others that we can see the way they're described, these two groups of people. Which would mean the other group is people. Okay, so we've got people who don't know God, which means the flip side, people that do know God. All right, what's another one? Okay, we've got people who don't obey the gospel, which means we've got people who do obey the gospel. Anything else that you can see there? Okay, good. People that don't believe versus people that do believe. There may be others. That's all I wrote down. So if you see another one, feel free to throw it out there. Okay, so... That's kind of how it's broken down. We've got people who afflict, people who don't know God, people who don't obey the gospel, people who don't believe. These are people that will be judged when Jesus returns. We've got people who are the afflicted, people that know God, people that do obey the gospel, people that do believe. These people are called saints. They get relief when Jesus returns. Okay? Which then leads me to another question. What does it mean? What does it mean to know God or to obey the gospel or to believe or the flip side what does it mean to not know God to not obey the gospel or to not believe what do you think it means to to not know God when it says that these people they don't know God they don't obey the gospel what does it mean for them not to know God if somebody were to ask you based on this passage what what does it mean if people people that don't know God are going to be punished for this what does that mean People that don't have information about God? Okay, no relationship with God. Good. What does it mean for them not to know God? Okay, they don't obey God. Good. Okay, to not know Him as He reveals Himself. Okay, good. Let's flip over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so they are without excuse. Paul says... Everybody can know God. They can know that he exists. They can know that he's powerful. They can know that he's eternal just by looking at creation. Just by looking at creation. Anybody, no matter what country you live in, no matter what culture you come from, Paul says everybody can know God. Everybody can look around and see there's a God who exists. Clearly, because we've got things here that no man can create. There's something bigger than us out there. There's something better than us out there. Clearly somebody or something was here before us. These are the invisible attributes of God that Paul talks about. Something that's eternal, something that's all-powerful. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In Romans chapter 2, Paul appeals to the fact that not only do they have knowledge about God and creation, we also have a law written on our hearts that tells us right and wrong. He says in Romans 2 that they will be judged, even if they've never heard the name Jesus, even if they've never heard about the God of the Bible, they will be judged by the fact that they disobeyed the law in their hearts. So they may never, never have seen the Ten Commandments. They may never have seen God's moral will listed to us in the Bible. They will be judged by the law in their hearts, and they disobey that law all the time. So to not know God in this passage means that they have rejected the knowledge that is available to them. They've gone a different direction. Romans 1 says they reject that knowledge, they become futile in their thinking, and they live for other things, whether it's false gods that they make up or whether it's simply living for themselves. Okay, So these people that don't know God, this group that we're talking about that doesn't know God, it's people that have rejected the knowledge that is available to them, They've rejected it and gone a different direction. Now, what does it mean to not obey the gospel? Or better yet, what do you think it means to obey the gospel? What do you think it means to obey the gospel? Let's don't use language that we've made up about asking Jesus into our heart. What does it mean to obey the gospel? What does it mean to be saved? How does the Bible reveal it in language that we can understand? This isn't the only place that it talks about our need to obey the gospel. Somebody says, hey, I read in the Bible that I need to obey the gospel. I don't think I've ever done that. Can you tell me if I've done that before or how I can do that? What would you tell them? Because if they don't obey it, they're going to get recompense and revenge, so they need to know. What were you going to say? Somebody? Submitting to God's authority? Okay. Good. It's repent and believe. And in that, we're submitting to his authority. We're, we're, we're submitting to what God says about us, that the way we live is not okay. That, that trying to get to him with our good works, not okay. So what it means to obey the gospel is to submit to his authority. And the way we do that is by believing in everything that he says to us and repenting of our sin. Now, repenting of sin doesn't mean that I make a commitment that I'm never going to sin anymore. And then if you do, you have to do it all over again. Repentance means I've changed my mind about my sin. Repentance means I've changed my mind about my sin. It's not what I want to do anymore. I want to do the opposite. 
Now, as believers who are still in sinful flesh, we, we continue to sin. And we will always continue to sin until Jesus comes back. But the difference between a believer and a non-believer is we have a different mindset about our sin now. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. It offends a holy God. I recognize that it's not the, right, it's not the best way to live. We've talked about this before, that God's commands are good. What he calls us to is the best way to live the life that he's created. We would expect the designer of this world to know how to enjoy this world. He gives us instructions. Too often we see it as a list of do's and don'ts, a list of commands that robs us of our joy. The Bible calls us to see his commands as good. And so repentance of sin is saying, you know what? I've been wrong my whole life. I've been enjoying this creation the wrong way. And it hasn't given me fulfillment. And so we repent of our sin, we change our mind, and we start to live the way God wants us to live. And as we fall back into our old way of life, we repent and come back. So we believe what God says is true, and it has a drastic change on our life. That's what it means to obey the gospel. Now Paul says judgment in 2 Thessalonians is coming on people that don't know God, people that don't obey the gospel. Let's look at a couple of passages together. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, talking about Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As the teaching is happening here, attention is drawn to what Jesus has accomplished for us. That he has accomplished salvation separate from works based on the law of Moses that we have to do. He says, you've been freed from that. You don't have to obey the law for salvation. Jesus obeyed the law for you. And if you believe in that, you can be saved. You can be, you can be saved. If you can put away your works, trust in the works of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 23. Again, we're seeking to understand these two groups of people, people that don't know God, people that don't know the gospel, people that do know God, people that do obey the gospel. First Peter 1, 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails falls but the word of the lord remains forever this is the good news that was preached to you the good news that was preached to us we have a responsibility to hear this good news to hear this gospel and believe in it and to believe in it it's been preached to everyone in this room i can guarantee that everyone in this room has sat under gospel teaching before the question that you have to ask is have you believed it have you put your faith and trust in that uh let's look at first peter four 1 Peter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter's drawn on the fact that, hey, don't glory in your suffering if you deserve it. Like, if you... If you murdered somebody or if you stole something or if you meddled in something, like, don't trust that God is, like, bringing good into your life. He's bringing discipline into your life. Like, you disobeyed. 
He says, but if you suffer as a Christian, if you're suffering because you do the right thing, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is a time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We see that aspect of faith and trust there once again. All right, so talking about these two groups of people, which group we fall into. We've said that to believe God, to obey the gospel means that I repent and I believe. We've talked about what repentance is. Let's talk about belief. What type of things do you think you have to believe to be saved? Because we've talked before. You are welcome to be a part of this church knowing that we will disagree on doctrine at times. Things that we would call secondary issues, which means we don't all have to agree about the rapture versus no rapture. We can be saved. We can be the body of Christ. We can disagree about the rapture. But there are some things that to disagree about these things would make us no longer Christian. So if somebody came to you and said, what do I have to believe to be saved? What do I have to believe to be saved? Do I have to believe that that there's a rapture? Do I have to believe... um, I'm not going to use any other examples. What do I have to believe? What do I have to believe to be saved? What would you answer? How would you say? Hey, Jesus was resurrected. What else? That Jesus is God. Leading to us being sinful. I would say that we have to believe that, um, that we are sinners and, and that's a result of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. What else? Okay, that God is obviously perfect and holy and and completely different from us, and we cannot come to him on our own effort, our own good works. Okay, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. All right, let's look at some of the things that I identified in my own study in Scripture that that the Bible says we have to believe these things to be saved. Um, Let's go to... Let's start in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 16, one that we are familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, be, only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his, world, his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we have to believe and, and trust in Jesus. We are told to identify the historical Jesus as our object of our faith. This is why if someone is truly a follower of Judaism, a religion that rejects Jesus as the Messiah, they cannot be considered Christian because their object of faith to them is not Jesus. They would say that they believe in the Old Testament. They believe in Yahweh. They believe that the Messiah is coming. They do not believe in Jesus. Therefore, they cannot be considered Christian. Uh, John 17, 3. And as we go through these, make sure that you believe these things. If you call yourself a Christian, make sure that you believe these things. And this is eternal life, that you, may, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is, again, Jesus calling himself out as the object of faith, that you are to believe in me for salvation. Romans 10, 9, something specific that we should believe about Jesus. I think somebody mentioned this about 
Jesus being God. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it's not just saying that we have to believe Jesus is in control or that Jesus is our authority. That Greek word for Lord is kurios. And when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, everywhere that God is mentioned as Yahweh, they take that word kurios and put it there. So if you were a Jew reading the Old Testament in Greek, which became like the accepted language for them at that time, you're reading what was known as the Septuagint. Everywhere you would have read about Yahweh, you would have read the word kurios. So you would have quickly identified the God that we love and worship and serve in the Old Testament is the kurios, the Lord. Now Paul says, if you don't believe that Jesus is the kurios, the Lord, then you cannot be saved. So not only do we have to believe in Jesus, we have to believe what Jesus revealed about himself, that he is God. Which means a Jehovah's Witness and a Mormon who says the opposite, that he's an angel, he's a prophet, he's a teacher. They can't be considered Christian. They can't be considered Christian. And that's not hatred or intolerance toward them. That's just clear what the Bible says about them. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is God, that you believe what Jesus said about himself, you believe what the scriptures testify about him, then you can be saved. To believe in Jesus, but don't just believe that he's a man that existed. Believe specifically who he said he was. Believe that he was resurrected. Verse 9, we won't go to the other passages that I have because this one's straightforward and clear. Believe that he's God and believe that God raised him from the dead. Which if you really read that, you're like, believe that he's God and believe God raised him from the dead. You're like, what? Like, he raised himself from the dead? Even though we don't have the word Trinity anywhere in Scripture, we see Trinity all through Scripture. There's clear, it's clear from Scripture, we've got distinct persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father raises God the Son from the dead. And we have to believe that. We also have to believe that God rewards those who come to him. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's believing certain things about God, that yes, he's just, but that he's also loving and merciful. It's what Rahab believed. Rahab said, my country's about to fall. My my city's about to be destroyed. I'm going to run to the God of Israel who's about to do that and see if I can find a way to be on his team. She believed that that the God of Israel would reward those who sought him. And she was saved for it. She was saved for it. That's why when, when we are presented with the gospel that we are sinful, that we are unholy, that we can't do anything good, that we deserve God's wrath forever, that ought to scare us to death. But the salvific response is to run to God and say, is there any way that you can accept me? I know what I deserve. I know what I deserve. But I'm asking for grace. I'm asking for mercy. I'm believing that you will reward me for seeking you. That's the essence of the gospel, that we don't deserve it. But that we come to him knowing who he is. We receive salvation. It's also believing that he justifies those who give up their good works. Philippians chapter 3. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is Paul. It's his testimony. Right before this, he gives off his worldly spiritual resume. This is who I am. If anybody has a right to be in God's presence based on what he has done as a person, it's me. But he says, I count everything that I've done, everything that I've accomplished spiritually is rubbish in order that I may know Jesus, in order that I may know Jesus and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, not having good works on my own that come from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. These are the things that we are to believe. So as I began to study this passage, I I wrote down those initial applications. These are things that clearly this passage is wanting to teach us, and we'll look at what it wants to teach us about those things deeper next week. But then I wanted to know, what about these two groups? Like, who, who, who falls into what group? And so I wanted to better understand, again, to refresh my mind, what does it mean to not know God? What does it mean to not know the gospel, to not obey the gospel, to be an afflictor? What does it mean to be the other side? And am I making sure, because we're told to test our faith, we're told to affirm our faith constantly, I need to make sure that I believe these things, that I'm on the right side. And I think what's really interesting is I wonder, as Paul writes this, If he is immensely encouraged and immensely overwhelmed at the fact that he used to be the opposite. Now, obviously, we all used to be the opposite, but he was the afflictor. He was the one that killed Christians. And he's now writing about the fact that if Jesus were to return today, these afflictors would get the affliction. And the ones that were being afflicted would receive relief. And I wonder, as Paul writes this, if he thinks... It's only by God's grace that I've switched sides here because I was the afflictor. I was the one that was killing Christians. I'm the one that deserves to suffer. But by God's grace, he flipped me. And now from from other passages, we know that Paul was afflicted, that he was persecuted. But I just wonder if that thought process went through his mind um, as he was working through that. All right, here's what I want to close with and we'll be done. And this is just for your own personal growth your own personal increase in faith and trust and understanding about god's word here um we've drawn a hard line here that we've got don't know god don't obey the gospel do know god do obey the gospel but without a doubt i have people all the time ask me about specific groups of people and what happens to them when they die and so i wrote down some of them Being a teacher of sixth graders, I get questions like this all the time. Um, Some of them I'm allowed to answer. Some of them I'm not allowed to answer. Um, One that I get asked a lot is what happens to babies? What happens to babies? Are they under God's wrath or are they freed from God's wrath? What happens to babies when we talk about eternal uh, eternal condition? Um, I get asked all the time about suicides. Can a person who commits suicide go to heaven? I get asked that constantly. Um, I get asked about people that have never heard of Jesus. Not only do I get asked about this, but this is something that gets talked about a lot in our media and culture. What happens to homosexuals? Can homosexuals go to heaven? Any other categories of people that you have had someone ask you about that maybe we could add to this list? And discuss real quick. Okay, other religions? This is your time to ask. 
Are these people going to heaven or not? Okay. Anybody else? That's true. I mean, I got family members that I think believe that they go to heaven, so it's not completely. Any other groups of people that you personally had to answer or didn't know how to answer? Do these people go to heaven or not go to heaven? Okay. Um, Maybe like backslidden people. The old people that are spewed out of his mouth. All right, let's talk about these for a minute, and, then, and this is how we'll kind of wrap it up. And uh, again, this leads us into our discussion for next week as we look at this passage more in depth. So we've seen some initial application. We've identified the fact that there's two groups of people. We've looked at what it means to obey the gospel, not obey the gospel, know God, not know God. Um, but now we're looking at kind of the, the in-betweeners, like which group are these people in? Okay, let's start with suicides. Um, I get asked this one a lot uh, because... I deal with people from a lot of different denominations at our school. And you most likely interact with people from a lot of different denominations. The suicide question comes from, it comes out of a belief that you have to repent of every sin that you commit in order to keep your salvation. So if someone comes out of a background where they have been told they can lose their salvation, that salvation hinges on their continued performance after they accept Jesus and follow Jesus, well, suicide's the natural... What happens because I'm dead, I can't repent of it. And so that's where that confusion flows from. It's the belief that I have to confess, and this is the one that I can't confess for. So do I get to go to heaven, or does my loved one get to go to heaven because they committed suicide? Now, we can start by saying that definitely here at our church, because of what the Bible teaches, we believe that you cannot lose your salvation. That if you're truly saved, you endure. You endure to the end. Okay. To me, this is not a clear-cut, dry, yes or no answer, because technically suicide means to take your life, to, to end your life. We know from, from Scripture, Samson is a great example of someone who pushed columns down and killed himself. Okay, So if we want to stick to the strict definition of suicide, Samson committed suicide. He killed himself. Now, he was killing others that were unholy, that deserved God's judgment, but he killed himself. And if you read in Hebrews chapter 11... He is considered in the hall of faith. Like he is a champion of the faith. I don't think anybody's in the hall of faith that's not in heaven. I think probably a prerequisite to being in the hall of faith is that you have to have gone to heaven. Okay, so it would be wrong for us to say that, oh, if you commit suicide, you can't go to heaven. My simple answer would be if they have believed and repented of their sin, then yes, they went to heaven. If they didn't do that, then no, they're not in heaven. It's not a matter of did they commit suicide or not. It's a matter of, did they believe in Jesus and did they repent of their sin? We have examples of someone who took their life and went to heaven. Now, that's not to say that everybody that commits suicide goes to heaven. Again, it's based on their, uh, their inner workings of what they did with the gospel. Now, we could argue that maybe things that led to that suicide are signs that they weren't really a Christian, potentially. But that's a case-by-case thing. That's not a... Let's sit around and talk about the people that commit suicide go to heaven or not. You really can't discuss it without knowing the actual person in the situation because it's not based on them committing suicide. It's based on what they did with the gospel. Okay? So if, you approach, if people approach you with this question, just know it flows from a mindset of thinking they have to repent of every single sin or they lose their salvation. Make sure you address that issue with them, and then this concern or this confusion typically goes away. Okay? Because most of the time people believe 
that their family member that committed suicide was a Christian, but they've been told that if they did this unpardonable sin, that they can't go to heaven. All right? People that have never heard of Jesus. People that have never heard of Jesus. People that have never heard the gospel. People that grow up in a country, the Bible's not in their language. What happens to these people? How would you respond to that? Romans chapter 1. Okay, if you were to go on and read uh, Romans chapter one shows why they don't have an excuse that they, they they have a knowledge of God, but they've rejected it. Romans chapter 10 gives us further indication that you have to know Jesus to go to heaven because Romans 10 says that they can't believe unless somebody goes and tells them. So somebody has to go tell them so that they can believe. If you didn't have to believe in Jesus, then people should never go to the mission field. I've talked about this before in my classes. If, if someone can go to heaven, I don't know what that noise is. If somebody can go to heaven without believing in Jesus, but as soon as they hear about Jesus, they're now responsible. And if they reject him, they go to hell. The best thing that we could ever do is never tell anybody about Jesus. Because if they can go to heaven without hearing about Jesus, keep your mouth shut. Don't tell anybody about Jesus. Then they're not responsible. Then they automatically go to heaven. But the, the, the Bible is mission-minded. It's go and tell, go and tell. The implication is if we don't, they can't receive the gospel. It's why people like Travis and Mandy picked up and left their families to go to countries that didn't have the gospel. It's an insult to missions to try to argue that people can go to heaven without Jesus. It's an insult to people that have left their families to go overseas, left the things of this world to go share the gospel. We should bring them all back home. They're without excuse. But I wouldn't say that they are held as accountable as someone who's grown up in church and heard Jesus every day of their life. I think scripture indicates a greater punishment for people that reject greater knowledge. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done to you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Jesus says, here's two cities that didn't get saved. You guys didn't get saved, but I did mighty works in your presence and you've rejected me. It'll be better for them on judgment day than it will be for you. Why? Because you had greater knowledge. Greater knowledge. You not only didn't know me, you didn't obey the gospel. You didn't obey the gospel. Um, we also see in Hebrews 10, this is where it's so important to understand that God is just and fair. But on Judgment Day, I believe he's going to take into account the fact of who, of who rejected and that his recompense and his vengeance measured by the rejection of knowledge. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people the fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The warning here by the author of Hebrews is that you have all the knowledge. 
He's talking to Jewish people who now have the gospel. I mean, they have it all. They know the Old Testament. They're getting all the truth of the New Testament. He says, if you reject this, how much worse is punishment going to be for you when you had all the playing parts? I mean, you had everything. You had all the pieces. And you said no. His punishment will be greater. So we can trust that God's justice is still good in this situation. But these people are definitely held accountable. And it's why we want to be mission-minded here at Sovereign Hope. Homosexuals. Um... This sin is, is, is oftentimes lumped into other sins that we all commit. And we're told that these type of people do not go to heaven. Idolaters, liars, thieves, homosexuals, um, anybody who commits sexual immorality does not go to heaven. So someone who is characterized by this type of sin, who has never repented of their sin, who's never changed their mind about this sin, does not go to heaven. Not because they commit homosexuality, but because they've not repented of their sin as a whole. As a whole. So, while I would say that someone who is living in blatant, habitual homosexuality is more than likely not a Christian, I would also have to question someone who lives with their boyfriend or girlfriend in a heterosexual relationship, is in blatant sexual immorality all the time, doesn't seem to be convicted about it, that they too probably aren't a Christian. So it's not because, hey, I don't struggle with this sin, so if you do, you probably aren't a Christian, because that's really where that comes from. This is a sin that a lot of us don't struggle with, so it's easy to judge people that do. And that's where that flows from. People that are um, antagonistic towards homosexuality is because they don't struggle with it. And it's easy to point that sin out because they'll never uh, be accused of it. But homosexuality does not prevent somebody from going to heaven. It still goes back to have they repented of their sins. Um, Other religions, we've kind of talked about that already and what we have to believe, that if we don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus, then salvation is not possible. So Muslims... um, Hindus, Buddhists, all these people, they say things about Jesus that is in confliction with what the Bible says about Jesus. Animals, um, I don't know. The Bible doesn't talk about it. Um, So if people want to believe it, just let it go. I mean, I got into a heated discussion with a cousin of mine. I only just said, let's just let that go. It's not really worth worth talking about. Um, Backslidden or lukewarm, again, this is a case-by-case situation. It's hard to determine. You know, I look in Scripture and I see Solomon, who I would think most of us would probably say, that guy's got to be in heaven like he wrote books of the Bible. But if you read his life, at the end of his life, he is worshiping false gods. And we don't have in the narrative anything about him stopping and coming back to God. So here's a guy who, te- who seems to really backslide and is worshiping false gods, false religions. He wrote books of the Bible. Now, we're not told Solomon in heaven, not in heaven. i got to think that he's there. He wrote books of the Bible. So I would have to say this is more of a case-by-case. Case. It's not a hard line that we can draw. All right? Uh, coming back to the first one now, maybe the biggest, uh, the biggest struggle to understand this one, because we teach hard that we are born into sin. David says, I was conceived in sin in the womb. So he acknowledged sinfulness in the womb, that before he ever had a choice of right or wrong, that he was considered sinful. We believe in, in original sin here. We believe that we are all sinful because of what Adam and Eve did, as David mentioned. We are sinful. We are sinful. So can God allow sinful babies, sinful children into heaven if they're not putting their faith and trust in Jesus. Now, there's some difficulties with this one because, one, what constitutes a baby? 
um, at what point do we stop calling a child a baby? Um, there's, there's debate about age of accountability. Some people have been told there's an age of accountability, which is not in Scripture. It's not there. Uh, we're not told that there's a certain age that someone all of a sudden becomes accountable for their choices and decisions. I think it's a case-by-case thing again. I believe, and, and it's taken me a long time to get to this point, um, because I was so convinced about original sin, I couldn't understand how God could allow children into heaven, how he could allow babies into heaven that had never made the choice to follow Jesus. But in studying Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul's argument in, in building a need for the gospel is that everybody's without an excuse, that everybody's without an excuse. So when they stand before God, they, there's nothing they can say. Romans chapter 3 ends with every mouth is stopped. Every mouth is shut because there's no argument that I can make for why I have an excuse for why I'm not going to heaven. To me, while I believe Scripture is very silent about the topic, and I think a lot of passages that people go to, there's some weaknesses for trying to prove this point. I think the greatest support for babies in the context of what we typically consider a baby to be in heaven is based on the fact that they would have an excuse. The argument in Romans 1, 2, and 3 is that people that go to hell don't have an excuse. Someone who's in the womb, who has never had the opportunity who's never had the opportunity to see God, to acknowledge God, to comprehend God, would, in my mind, seemingly have an excuse here. And so I, and most people believe that babies go to heaven. I'm afraid that most of them are built more on sentimental reasons than biblical reasons. I want to give you a biblical reason. Okay? We obviously look at children and say, I mean, they're innocent. Like, how could, they go to, how could they go to hell? Well, they're not innocent according to what Scripture describes them as. But I believe that God is loving, gracious, and merciful. And I believe that he acknowledges the fact that this person doesn't understand. This person doesn't understand when they're going to the bathroom yet. Like they're 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 so young in their knowledge and their comprehension and the way their minds work. Obviously, obviously, they would have an excuse in my mind um, when they stood before God. Now, that's not to say that I believe that I've that, that we put God in a box here and say that He has to let children into heaven. Because if we were to get to heaven and find out that He didn't, I don't think He would be any less just. And what the Bible presents him as. Um, but I do believe that based on that reasoning from Romans that we can support and, and confidently, as much as we can, say that absolutely God allows those who do not comprehend into heaven. But I've also cautioned you as parents, don't allow that to delay your responsibility to get the gospel to your children. And, and I've had conversations with some of you about, hey, your children are, are, if there is an age of accountability, they are moving beyond that. Like, they are now being responsible. They know right and wrong. They know Jesus. And it's definitely a burden on our part to get the gospel to them. Because if we can say that a four-year-old can go to heaven, then we would also have to say the flip side, that a four-year-old can reject the gospel as well. So it's absolutely imperative. And that's why we put such a heavy focus on our kids ministry here i don't ever want it to view it as a babysitting service let's just stick them in a room get them out of here so that we can teach you guys that they need the gospel at early of an age as possible that's why we want to specifically pick teachers to be in that kids class that can get the gospel to our children because they need to be saved they need to be saved at as early an age as possible as early as they understand and comprehend we want the gospel in their minds here at sovereign Hope. all right any questions about any of that yeah, I think, that, I think it would still fall into the, the baby category of do they have an excuse or not an excuse. So I think it would be 
it would be determined based on the, the, the intensity of that, like how extreme is that handicap. Um, and I don't think, and again, I don't think this is something that we can determine in and of ourselves. I think this is why we're able to trust a just God who does the right thing. I think that's what's so encouraging about Second Thessalonians is that however it plays out, it's the right way. It's the right way. I would say that that person will be judged based on what they did with the gospel before that. In the same way that Jesus cautions people in saying, don't reject the gospel so much that it stops being offered to you. He calls that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin. If you reject the gospel to the fullest, Jesus cautions and says, it may never be offered to you again in the sense that the Holy Spirit works on you. Now, you may still hear the gospel in a church service, but you will have no inclination to respond to it. Um, so that would be a situation where someone has obviously no longer has an opportunity to be judged accordingly to how they handled the gospel beforehand. Any other questions? Hopefully that was helpful and encouraging to you to see how I initially start studying a passage. Maybe it gives you some guidance for how to prepare on a Sunday morning, knowing that, okay, I'm going to be in these verses next week for you to spend some time doing what we did this morning, preparing yourself to come here because you've already studied it a little bit on your own. You've drawn out some of that initial application. Maybe you've asked some questions so that when at the end, if I say, are there any questions, it may be that I clarified everything that I said, but if you've spent some time looking at it during the week, you may have asked a question to yourself that maybe I didn't address, and we'd be able to talk about it at the end of the sermon. So hopefully that was a little bit of a different feel this morning. Hopefully it was encouraging, and hopefully it um, helps you maybe know better how to approach Scripture and will prepare us moving forward for how to um, learn better together as a group. Again, we'll look at these truths and, and whatnot a little bit deeper Next week, the thing that I want to leave you with in preparation for next week is that Jesus is coming back. He is God, as we've seen. He is the curios. He's the one that's coming with vengeance, but also with relief. And as we started off by saying today, endurance is the evidence of our salvation. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. The fact that you're enduring in your tribulation. I would encourage you as we leave, as we go through our different circumstances this week that we would endure in our faith, trusting that God is working good in those circumstances and in those situations, ultimately longing for the fact that Jesus will come back one day and set everything right like he talks about in this passage. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for the time that we've had in your word today. I know it's been longer than normal, but God, I pray that what we've talked about today, what we've been able to look at together has been a time for us to increase in our faith and trust in who you are. God, I pray that that we would be a church that, that wants to know you through your word, but not just on Sunday mornings coming and listening to a sermon. God, I have such a desire to see each one of our members, each one of our attenders to be going to the word regularly and knowing how to study it, knowing how to draw these truths out on their own. God, I don't want our church to be built on growing in response to teaching that you give to me. I want our church to grow based on your word a word that saturates us throughout the week, not just on a sermon on Sunday morning. God, I pray that we would continue to endure as a church as we go through difficulties and trials, God, that we would see your goodness in the midst of that, ultimately that we would put our hope and trust in the fact that you are coming back one day, that you're not going to delay, that any seeming delay right now is for the goodness of those who have not yet turned to you, that you delay your judgment so that salvation is made available. God, help us to 
trust in the fact that when you do return, justice will be served. Things will be made right. And all wrongs will be done. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.